If you will turn to Philippians, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And while you're turning there, I have a confession to make, and it seems like this series is good for personal confessions with you, so I want to be transparent. I don't, I don't like family gatherings. The, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd like the family, but I, you got to drive somewhere. It's a long trip. You, you're eating road food, which, uh, you know, which is just uh, half a level above almost nothing. And, and you get there, and you're in a strange house, sleeping in a strange bed. There's funny noises going through the house, people moving around. You don't know who's moving around. You know, there's always the big meal. Everybody gets together for the meal, and Mimi messes up the mashed potatoes. Uncle Fred goes to sleep during the meal. And it, it, it's, just, it's just so inconvenient and, and, and so uncomfortable. And, and it's the same thing, and you, you know what I'm talking about. It's the same thing if somebody comes over your house. Now there they're, they're these strange people in your house moving around. You know, it's hard to get to the bathroom. And, and you know, it's the same ordeal in the house. It's just, it's just really, really inconvenient. But I go back and do it over and over again. Why? Why? Well, I want to I talk to you about why. And, you know, we're in the middle of this series called uh, love in action, and uh, what we want to talk about for last week and this week and next week is how do we put feet to this love that Christ has for us and in us? Uh, we started uh, our three-part series last week, and uh, we're looking at what the love of Christ looks like in, in our homes, and that love is characterized by today's passage. So today's passage is kind of the anchor for this whole idea of putting love into action and this idea that we're going to be emphasizing this as we go through our year. Uh, So last week was taken directly out of Ephesians 5, um, whose tone is set by verse 21 of Ephesians 5. We talked about this a little bit last week. If you weren't here, um, you got to take Ephesians 5 as a whole. There are a lot of people that put a break in between verse 21 and verse 22, and there's really no break there in the original manuscripts. Uh, so the, the tone for Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul has established the basics of our belief in 1, 2, 3, uh, and, and talked about Jesus Christ and God and their relationship, our relationship with him, and in 4 he starts talking about how that becomes a practical part of our lives. And in five, he takes it into the home. And so what characterizes chapter five is verse 21, where Paul tells the members of the body of Christ that they are to submit themselves to each other. He says, submit yourselves one to another. Now today, we're going to find out how to do that corporately. Uh, So uh, uh, Paul says, to count others as more significant than ourselves. And I just, I just want you to stop and think about that for a second. Count others as more significant than yourself. Now, as we found out last week, that certainly applies to marriage and family relationships. Uh, but 
we're going to find out this week that that applies to the church as well. Now, I, I, I got to tell you something, and, and you know, I, I, I bragged on you um, in the first service. I'm going to do it again. You guys are getting this. You, you guys are, are beginning to embrace this. We've been talking for a long time about uh, what union with Christ means and, and how that should affect how we relate to each other and what it means as we're going out there through our lives. If you've never thought about your union with Christ, the more you ponder it, the more you realize it will touch every single aspect of your life. And so you're getting it, and, and we're blessed by that. Uh, I was at a, a pastor's meeting last week, two weeks ago, and we were going around the table, and we're doing what pastors always talk about, uh, you know, what's going on in your church, what's going on in your church. And, and the subject on this church became um, the inconsistent attendance. Uh, I don't have to talk to you about this. You're already here. Uh, but there are a lot of people in a lot of churches, and everybody's struggling with it, who go to church maybe once a month or so. Uh, maybe twice a month if they're really kind of working themselves up. Uh, and so, you know, and, and they're part of the body of Christ, and, and we appreciate them, and, and we pray that God blesses them. But there are a lot of reasons why this is happening. A lot of it has to do with our culture. But we started talking about this fact that we're all struggling with. You know, we have this body of people that we're ministering to, and they're never really sitting in front of us on any given Sunday. We've got about half of our people. And um, so we got into that discussion, and uh, one of the guys said, well, you know, it's really having an impact on our, our projects, on our outreach, on the things we do in the community, on the things we do in the church. And, and they started going around the table and going, yeah, yeah, well, we're having that problem too. You know, 50% of the people here on Sunday, 50% coming out for the projects and everything. And they got to me, and one guy looked at me and said, well, what about you, John? I said, we're not having that problem. Matter of fact, our participation is through the roof. That's you guys. Uh, you know, we've we gotten to the point to where, you know, when we, when we first started talking about these things, uh, we, we were pulling teeth getting people to come out and help us, and, and, you know, we appreciated the ones that did, but it was hard to get enough people to do a project. And now we're at the point where we've just got plenty of people, and this is you. This is you responding to the call of God. This is you responding to what the body of Christ should be. So we, we have participation in the projects. We have participation in our prayers. We have participation in our finances. And, and yeah, so I say all that to say, good job, guys. You know, this is going along really well. And, and it's an honor for me to be part of a body that takes the word of God so seriously and, and we, we've made progress, and, and we will continue to make process, progress. So, in, in that light, I want to share this truth with you today. So, and I want you to hold on to this, because it's important. Here it is. Church is like a family. Church is like a family. Now, listen carefully. I'm talking about ideal church, and there aren't any ideal churches, amen? I, I, I think you guys come close, <laughs> but there aren't any ideal churches, and Lord knows there aren't any ideal families, right? <laughs> so, so all of our families are dysfunctional at some level, but for the picture of family that we see in the Bible, uh, the way God intends a family to be, church is just like that, and we're going to see that in our passage today, and, and if, if we understand it, and if we continue to work at it, then Warrington Bible Fellowship can be everything that God intends it to be. We're, we're, we're on a path to get there, but uh, just like our sanctification, just like our relationship with God, there's still some to go. 
and we can do all this together. And I'm, I'm telling you that because if it's going to happen, then we have to have a very strong dose of humility. Now that's hard. Matter of fact, it's doubly hard in the cultural environment that we're in. You know, we, I, I, I love this country. Uh, I, I wouldn't live anywhere else in the world other than here in the United States. Uh, you know, we're blessed. We're, we're, uh, we're, in the eyes of the world, most of the world, we're rich. Okay? But humility is not one of our strong points. Never has been. We're land of the free and home of the brave and flags and all this stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that. That, that stuff's important. But we're in a culture that looks upon humility as weakness and incapability. So if, if the church is going to be everything that God intends for it to be, it's going to need a strong dose of humility to get there. So our sermon today is Love in Action in the Church. This is part two of our three-part series. And we're going to take a look at what the Scripture has to say about humility. In this passage, Paul makes two strong statements about humility in verses uh, 1 through 4. He talks about the essentials of humility, the foundation, the essence of humility. And in 5 through 11, he gives us examples and a primary example of what humility looks like. So, um, as you know, we don't take anything out of context. Uh, Context is king. If we don't understand the context of any given passage, we're never going to understand what God wants us to learn about this. And in particular, in today's passage, because it starts out with the word so. Uh, So that means that it's kind of borrowing and capitalizing upon everything that went before. Uh, To give you a quick look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, um, uh, Philippians, Paul gives thanks for the church at Philippi. Um, They know that he's been through a lot of hardship. They know that uh, he's been imprisoned, he's been tortured, he's been beat up, he's been stoned. All these things have happened to him. They know about that. And Paul tells them that it's okay. That, that he knows that they know and that he's doing this, all of these things he's going through are for the sake of the gospel. He admits that he would rather be in heaven, that he would rather be with Christ uh, than there in the world, uh, but he stays for their sakes, for their sakes. So if, if you were to take a look at chapter 1 and try to find one verse that stood out, one verse that kind of summarized everything chapter 1 of Philippians was about, it would be verse 27, which says this, only, and he's talking to the church, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, if you were to go through chapter 1 verse by verse, you would see that it's a stunning expression of Paul's own humility. The joy that he has, the life that he lives, is for the gospels, for the glory of God. And it's for the sake of the church. What Paul does, he does for the glory of God and for the sake of the church. So, in chapter 2, we find out that Paul wants the church to complete his joy. And here's where we see 
the essence, the, the essentials of humility. In verse 1 through 4, he says this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, he says, there are four ways to make his joy complete. Now, you've got to bear in mind that Paul's joy is in the church, and he wants, his, he wants the church to, to complete his joy, to fill out his joy. What, what, what does that mean? It, it means this. Have, have you ever helped anybody move? At least one of you has. That's fantastic. Yes. I just got done bragging on you guys. Okay. So, yeah, you know that packing the van is always hard, isn't it? We helped some folks move uh, a couple years ago. They were moving from coast to coast. They had the van set up, and uh, uh, we, we had a whole bunch of people there, and we had people in the house, and they started streaming into the van, probably had the van about 10% loaded, and, and the owner came out and said, stop, stop everything, take everything off the van. And, we're, and I'm thinking, we can get this thing done in two or three hours or so. And so he had us unload the van and put everything in a driveway, and he set things up. He goes, I'm going to be in the van. I'll be packing. I need a couple guys down here handing me stuff. I need the rest of you bringing stuff out and sitting in the driveway. And so he's in the van with a measuring tape. And, and he's measuring things. He goes, okay, that'll go here. And he's looking at them, and, he goes, and that'll go over here. And, and, and so he's very meticulous about this. And it took all day to fill the van. But I've got to tell you something. When that van was full, there was no air left. It was packed absolutely full. He and I were standing at the van, and I'm looking at this wall of stuff that the door is just closing on, and there's a chair sitting on the outside, one kitchen chair. And I looked at him, I said, I don't think the chair's going to fit. And he said, the chair's for you. So he gave me the chair because there was no more room on the van. It was completely full. This is how full Paul wants his joy to be in what the church is doing. There's no more room left. There's as much joy as can be experienced in his relationship with the church. And he gives them four ways to do this. He says, you should be an encouragement to each other. Now, this is something we need to think about. So we should be, you know, we talked last week uh, about how we should be uh, speaking to each other in, in scriptures and psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs. And so we, we should, when we come together as a body, when the ecclesia assembles, we should be encouraging each other in whatever way we can. This doesn't leave much room for criticism or complaining. So we should be a constant edification to each other. And the way we edify each other is by walking through the Word of God. We don't just recite it, but we live. We, we are an encouragement to each other. Paul says, this is one thing you can do to make my joy complete. And the next thing they, they can do is to be a comfort of love to each other. Now, again, comforting each other, uh, supporting each other, 
crying when they cry, laughing when they laugh, celebrating when they celebrate, grieving when they grieve, uh, celebrating their successes, and, and walking with them through their failures and their shortcomings. And, and, and there's no room for turning to somebody and, or, or thinking of somebody, how can you possibly do that? I would never do that. There's plenty of room for, can I pray for you? Can I sit with you? Can we have a cup of coffee together? That extending the type of love that we would want to receive from, from somebody as a, a source of comfort. And then there is, for the third thing, participation in the Spirit. I love this. I love this. Because we have, we have something supernatural and miraculous that the rest of the world doesn't have. If you came in here today and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have the Spirit of God living inside you. And He guides us and He counsels us and He shows us what to do and He warns us what not to do. He cautions us and, you know, conviction when it comes from the Father is never to condemn us uh, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, conviction when it comes to the Father is an act of love from the Father saying, draw closer to me. And Paul is saying, we need to participate in that. And what he means is, we need to know the Holy Spirit well enough to know when he's speaking to us, to know the difference between our own emotions and our own feelings and the Spirit of God. And that comes from reading our Bibles and praying. Uh, we need to know the Spirit well enough to know when he's leading us, but we need to listen to the Spirit when he's leading us as well. And, and I, I don't know about you, but that's probably where I have my biggest struggle. You know, I'll, I'll be considering something I probably shouldn't be doing, and the Spirit's sitting there going, don't do that. Don't. You know that's a violation of everything that you've read. You know that's contrary to everything you know to be about the character and nature of God. And sometimes I go, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, that never turns out well. Okay, but I can be stubborn. I know you're not. But I can be stubborn on those things. So I, I have to actively intentionally participate with the Spirit as He leads me in sanctification. It's what He's there for, to draw us closer to God. So we have encouragement of, of each other, comforting each other, participation in the Spirit, and He says affection and sympathy. Now, it's a good translation, but I think it falls short of what Paul was trying to say, because when he talks about affection, using a very descriptive word here. And uh, for the Greeks of their time, they would hear Paul saying, love coming from your bowels. Uh, now, they, they took that as a form of, of flattery, okay? We would say, love coming from the depths of your heart. Loving with all that you have. Pouring yourself out for someone. This isn't just, oh, affection, you're a nice guy, I like you. This is like, I'll do anything for you. I'll sacrifice for you. My love for you is so great, I will humble myself before you as an expression of that love. So that type of love, that type of affection, and sympathy. And, we, you know, we talked about grieving. We talked about looking at somebody and trying to understand what they're going through rather than trying to explain what we're going through. We're looking at, at the people around us and trying to find ways that we can minister to them. Ways that we can connect to them on a more intimate level. Ways that we can nourish and edify them. 
So affection and sympathy. Participation in the spirit. Encouragement of each other. And comforting each other. Now all that, all that takes humility. If the church is going to fulfill its purpose, we, as the body of Christ, need to humble ourselves before God. Now, you're a mature congregation. You know that. You know that. But we need to humble ourselves before each other as well. And again, this is countercultural. This is contrary to, to our own natures and our own instincts. It can be very difficult to humble ourselves before God. It can be difficult to humble ourselves for God. And because of that, sometimes it is difficult to see when somebody else is humbling themselves before us. Yeah, there's a story about an older couple. Um, the guy was a baker. Uh, they'd been married for a long time. And every afternoon before dinner came, uh, the, guy, the guy would make some dough and he'd knead it. And, and he made a pretty good loaf of bread. They were small, a loaf of bread for two. And by the time dinner time came, he would put this hot loaf of bread on the table as part of their dinner. And he would cut off the two ends and give them to his wife, and then he would eat the middle. And so the wife didn't like that. But she didn't say anything because she loved her husband. She wanted to be a good wife. And this went on for years and years and years. And finally, they'd been married for quite some time. And he brings the bread to the table one day, and he cuts off the ends and puts it in front of her. And she goes, I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. I don't know how many years you've been doing this, but you make this beautiful loaf of bread and you cut off the ends and you keep the middle. And that's where all the good bread is and there's butter in it and everything. And I got, I got the two heels. Why do you do this to me? And he looked at her and looked down at the floor and he said, uh, the heel is my favorite part of the bread. She didn't see she didn't see him humbling himself and treating her as more important than himself. That's where we need to be. One of the essentials of humility is treating each other as more important. To Paul, this is the essence of the body of Christ and the joy that can be had in being part of the body of Christ. It's the core of the family of God. So, Paul takes that, and, and, you know, we've seen this time and time again in Paul's writings. He never leaves you hanging and says, well, just be humble. He's going to give us examples to do it. He's going to show us how to humble ourselves. So, we, we have examples of what this humility looks like. In verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves. Now, what he's saying is, be of the same mind. And what he means is, think alike. Now, this is something that takes some intentionality as well. We all have our own preferences, don't we? We all have our own desires, don't we? And he's saying, everybody think alike. Get this church, this body, on the same page be thinking the same thing. Now, it, 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 he's not talking about being in the same political party. 
He's not talking about we're all going to drive the same car and have the same type of house and wear the same clothes and listen to the same music. What he's saying is our intentionality is going to be the same. The reasons that we come together should be the same. The reasons that we, we attend, that we participate, and what we expect out of our participation should be the same. We should all be in harmony in that. And, and we can do it because of the next phrase. It says, this is yours in Christ. He's talking about the union that we have in Christ. When we confess our sins... When we repent, when we turn from them and turn towards Him, the Scripture says that we become one with Christ. This is is an incredible thing. We've been talking about it for a while, but I want you to consider it again. If you know that you're one with Christ, if you know something supernatural has happened, some change has occurred to you, then everything you do and everywhere you go, everything you say, everything you think, you think with Christ. We were just talking in Sunday school about the myth of privacy. There's no such thing. You're worried about what somebody sees you wrote on Facebook? Where is somebody's going to get your address, which is in the phone book, by the way? Worry about what you're thinking. Let's be concerned about what's in our hearts. Christ knows that. If you understand union with Christ, it'll change your life. Everywhere you go and everything you say, he's there with you. I've said it before, that's can be quite a blessing when we're in trouble. It can be quite a hindrance when we're making trouble. And let's be honest with each other. There are times in our lives when we'd rather he wasn't around. Hope he's not looking. We're united with him. We've become one with him. And let me tell you something. That relationship goes a little bit deeper than you think. We'll explore that in just a few minutes, okay? So he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You already have it. You can do this because you are united with Christ, who, verse 6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I love, I love this word grasped here. It, it's graphic, but it, it's not quite graphic enough. Uh, it is the, the uh, Greek word arpegmos, uh, and it means not to be taken forcefully as an advantage over somebody. And the intention is to say not to think too highly of ourselves. You see, we are united with Christ. We are equal with each other. Scripture goes over that time and time again. But we are not to esteem ourselves too highly. And we know that we're not supposed to do that because Christ didn't esteem himself too highly. Instead of Christ believing that he was all that and running around going, you know, I'm the Lord of all creation... Here's what he did, verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul's example 
of humility. There's some things that happen here, but his example is Christ. Christ humbled himself. We should humble ourselves as well. I mean, here's what, he, here's what he did. He refused to think more highly of himself than others. Can, can you imagine God taking on flesh, coming down here and saying, I'm, I'm going to treat you as more important. I, isn't that what he did? He sacrificed everything so that we could have these precious moments together. He emptied himself and he became a servant. You know, this is another one of those sayings that kind of drips off our back and we don't think about it, but I want you to think about this for a second. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I love that phrase because what it means is every king ever established in his rule, every emperor, I mean, it's not just kings that the scripture's talking about. Every emperor, every dictator, every president, every prime minister, every queen, every leader who ever had any leadership authority, I mean, what does Christ say to Pilate? The only authority you have is what the Father's given you. He establishes all rule and all authority. So that means every corporate head, uh, every board of directors, every boss, Jesus is the king of. He's the king of all that. He's the Lord of all creation. Everything was created in him and through him. And when he came, he became a servant. That just blows people's minds. They don't know what to do with that. I mean, we all love the fairy tales where the servant becomes the king. Who wants a fairy tale where the king becomes a servant? But that's the reality of what God did. He came down to serve us because we were unable to save ourselves. He treated us as more important than himself so that we could be one with him. He humbled himself. That's just not the way we look at leaders, but this defines what a leader is. And he was obedient to the point of death. Again, it's a phrase that's easy to read, but extremely difficult to live. Lord, let me be someone who's obedient until death. Let me be that person that when they're getting ready to nail me to the cross that I I keep the faith. I mean, that's the moment where we define ourselves, isn't it? So he's not only obedient to death, he's obedient to a cursed death. He died on a tree. To the people around him, they would see that as a curse. They would see that as him having lost God's favor. I mean, if you're standing at the cross, look, look the, 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 the clouds come in, darkness falls, the earth is shaking, rocks are breaking, dead people are walking around. Nobody was going, wow, that's pretty neat. So he dies 
looking like a curse, in service to those people around him, humbling himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, And except for the resurrection, that would look pretty bad. (laughs) But he came back. He came back and proved that everything he said and everything he was is valid. The way to leadership is through humility. The way to service is to treat each other as more important than ourselves. I mean, that's what we see in our two approaches to humility here. Treating others as more important is the foundation of the church. And Christ is the example of what that's like. And, and, and we see the result of Christ humbling himself right there in the scripture. Of, of humbling himself before all those people who came to serve. God exalted him. Gave him a name above all names. So that at his name... Every knee would bow and every tongue confess. I love that one too. Because what it says is that those people who reject Jesus Christ will at one point acknowledge that he is Lord. They'll be on their way to hell, on their way to eternal constant torment, but they'll be going, you know what? I missed it. He was the Son of God. He was the only way to salvation. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And his name has that much power. And you and I are part of that. We are one with that name. Don't let it go to your head. We're not one with that name so that people will bow down to us. We are one with that name so that we can be the same type of example to the world that he was to us. And we can do this because we're one with him and we're one with each other. Now hold on to this for a second because I, I, get that. I was talking to somebody about the sermon last week and they don't go here and, um, and the guy said, well, you're, you're just, you're, every time I talk to you, you're on this union with Christ thing. Why is that so important? And I said, you should come Sunday because I'm going to explain why it's important. He's got his own church. It's a good church. And uh, I'm, I'm just hoping he'll listen. Uh, so follow me on this, okay? Why is our union with Christ important? Last week we talked about Ephesians 5. It described the marriage relationship. And it, it said that that relationship was like Jesus and the church. Amen? So consider this carefully. Now watch this. Genesis 3 says that a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to this woman and become one flesh. So they become, you know, when we do a wedding ceremony here, um, at the end of the ceremony, the people stand in front of me and I'll I'll do this. I'd like to introduce to you for the first time anywhere, Mr. and Mrs. John Smith. And see, and what, what the scriptures tell us about that moment is that, that a family is formed. It's not a big family, it's not an extended family, but it's the formation of a family. 
And we see this physical representation of something that God is doing in heavenlies. He's forming one flesh. He's forming a family. The family is one flesh. Amen? We are the bride of Christ. God's given us this picture of one flesh so that we could understand the nature of the relationship between Christ and the church. We are one flesh with Christ. God has done something in the heavenlies that goes beyond our imagination, beyond our understanding. He's done a supernatural formation of a family, a family of God. But you never thought of it that way, did you? That'll change the way you look at people when you walk into church because we're one flesh. That's how deep the union goes. We have the same type of relationship that God was talking about in Genesis 3. He gave us Genesis 3 and Ephesians 5 so that we could understand who we are as a church. We're that tightly united. And if you stop to think about it, it's how things work, isn't it? I mean, I'm one flesh with my wife. Greatest blessing I've ever had in my life. But we don't always get along. Now everybody's feeling a little uncomfortable, okay? But we all have those moments. And if we're honest with ourselves, we will admit that those moments are characterized by one of us not treating the other as more important. I mean, that's how we end up in fights. Kelly's much better at this than I am. So I have to learn from her on this. Okay? But that's what happens. And, and the reason that it's so difficult, the reason that it strikes our hearts so much, is because we're one flesh. And we're looking at our Father in heaven and saying, I'm going to deny this one flesh thing because there's some tension right now and I'm more important. Same way the church functions. We do the same thing in church. I'm sorry, I don't like that, and I'm more important. See, the reason I go back to the family reunions, the reason that I suffer all those little irritations it's because I love my family and I know that whatever I have to go through is worth it to be with my family that's the mindset we have to have about church church is not always convenient the logistics don't always work out sometimes when we get there there are irritants available sometimes things don't go the way we planned sometimes the mashed potatoes are lumpy but if we're treating each other as more important than ourselves all that fades away and we realize that our participation in the body of Christ is worth it okay now so, so we understand that the church is like the family the ideal church is like the family all the things we do with our family are worth it. All of the uncomfortable, inconvenient things that might happen. 
Because our hearts are drawn to our family, our hearts are drawn to Christ, our heart, if our hearts are drawn to Christ, our hearts are drawn to each other. What does it look like? What do we do with this? I mean, these are lofty thoughts, aren't they? Let me tell you what it looks like. Because, because I think as, as much as God has blessed us, and as great as a job as we're doing together, I just want to commend you again at the, the incredible things that God is blessing this church and this community for and how we do things together. I think we can take it to the next level. I think we can go deeper in our relationship with God. I think we can go deeper in our relationship with each other. If we can just get a hold of this, treating each other as more important than ourselves, I think we can become everything that God intends us to be. And what that looks like is this. You know, when I walk into church on Sunday, I've kind of got an idea of how things would like to go. And I hope they play my favorite song. If I'm going to do this, I've got to go, Jimmy, I hope they play your favorite song today. I don't like it, but I hope they play it. So we've got to look at each other with those eyes, thinking the, the other person is more important than ourselves. At the end of church, instead of gravitating towards our closest friends or running out the door because we've got other things to do, we should be looking for that person who's new or maybe that person who's by themselves and doesn't have anybody to talk to and treating them as more important than ourselves, more important than our plans. Somebody gets promoted into a position, somebody is given some authority, the elders make a decision or the deacons do something or, or whatever. Somebody in leadership does something we don't agree with and we celebrate them and what they're doing rather than getting upset over not getting our way. This is hard stuff because we have to work contrary to our nature. We have, to, we have to intentionally listen to the Spirit as He guides us through these things. We have to know our Scriptures. We have to be aware of what our feelings are. Because it's easy to fall off that step and treat ourselves as more important than the people around us. And, and i got to tell you something. Here at Warrington Bible Fellowship... That, that can be doubly easy because we do a lot of stuff. You take a look at our calendar. We do a lot of stuff. We've got Bible studies and connect groups and activity groups and outreach and, and mission trips and, and all sorts of things. We're down at the we're down at the shelter, we're down at Eva Walker Park, we're working with the Warrington Gospel Partnership. It would be easy if, if, we, if we overdid it and said, okay, I'm going to treat everybody as more important than myself. I'm going to go do all this stuff. You can't. There's too much stuff for us all to do everything. What we need is for some people to do some stuff. And God has given us a, a unique set of giftings, hasn't he? We all have things that we're gifted to do, things that we're talented to do. So, you know, we put out a call for cookies. We don't need everybody to make cookies. If everybody made cookies, we'd have too many cookies. I just need the people that like to make cookies to make some cookies. <laughs> you know, we put out a call for water. We don't need everybody to bring water. I mean, that kind of happened last year. We got two years' worth of supply of water back in the townhouse here. Praise God. Amen. Okay. We don't need everybody to be at Eva Walker. We don't need everybody to be down at the shelter. We just need some people there. 
But the some people that are doing whatever it is we're doing need to be supported, encouraged, and comforted, and, and com- given compassion by the rest of the people. Some of us are going to pray. Some of us are going to help with finances. Some of us are just going to be a word of encouragement. Some of us are just going to be here. It's okay. And if we, if we go into that, but I don't have to do everything, but God is leading me this way, he's equipped me this way, so I will do this and I will do this, then there's no pressure to get the other things done. We've got a lot of people. God's given us an incredible variety of talents and capabilities. I mean, you see it every Sunday morning when the worship team gets up. The key to everything treat each other is more important than ourselves. So, you can do this. When you walk into the sanctuary next Sunday, stand there for a second and look and say, who's more important than me? Because the answer is everybody. The answer is everybody. Let's pray.